Hello, wonderful listeners, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Jeanette Bouchard, and I am a liaison clinical pharmacist with the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network, or DASON. This is our next episode in the series we like to call Dosing Consult. We've had a few other of these, including dosing regarding linazolid, ceftriaxone, as well as dosing in children and adults with obesity. And so this is our next in our series. To start out, how many times have you been asked, do I have to give Flagyl 500 milligrams Q8 hours? Um, can we get away with Q12 hour dosing? I would say that I haven't been aggressively asked about this question in my practice, but it is coming up more often. One thing I have been asked recently is wouldn't it save costs and be more convenient for the patient and the healthcare providers? And so we're going to get into that a little bit today, as well as review some of the data and the consensus on dosing in this specific dosing consult. Today, we've got two experts to help us navigate this question. First, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nicholas Turney, who is an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Munson Healthcare in Traverse City, Michigan. He is a fellow SIDP member and helped fundraise for numerous SIDP educational efforts in the past, including this podcast. So if you like it, he's one of our many folks working tirelessly behind the scenes to make it happen. He's wicked smart, and I look forward to hearing his thoughts on this topic. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeanette, for those kind words. And it's really been an absolute pleasure working with the Breakpoints team over the last few years and being a small part of the success that this podcast has experienced. And I'm really ecstatic to complete the trifecta of listener, behind the scenes fundraiser, and now a guest on the Breakpoints podcast. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, I don't think we have very many people who have hit that trifecta. So I was thinking that maybe we should hand out some sort of badge with like the trifecta symbol on it as part of our Breakpoints merch that we're going to do in the future. <laughs> Next, we have Dr. Sunish Shah, who is an infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. His research interests include gram-negative resistance, endocarditis, and infections in patients who inject drugs. Interestingly enough, I met him at last ID week. And so one of those happenstances where we both have a mutual friend in common, Dr. Ryan Shields, and we ended up hanging out at ID week. So I'm very excited to have him here on the pod and get his expertise there. He also, fun fact, loves playing chess, skateboarding, and has a cat he is very fond of. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to get to be here. All right. I have um, a patient question to angle us into this discussion. So we've received a dosing consult for metronidazole, 500 milligrams by mouth every 12 hours. A physician colleague heard that the half-life of this agent is long enough to warrant this more convenient dosing regimen compared to the more commonly used every eight-hour dosing against systemic anaerobic bacterial infections for patients in the hospital setting. She wonders, is this true? First, let me ask you, Nick, can you give us a brief review of metronidazole's pharmacokinetics? All right, let's dive into some ADME, so absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. Um, it certainly brings me back to second-year pharmacy school. We'll start with absorption. So metronidazole is nearly completely absorbed in its oral form. I'd argue that this is one of metronidazole's superpowers. The bioavailability is over 90%, which has been consistently found in several PK studies over the last few decades. 
And it's this high bioavailability of metronidazole that gives us more confidence in extrapolating the IV administration outcomes data, which there are plenty, to oral administration. And it allows, especially in the hospital setting, to implement IV to PO conversions for patients with functional GI tracts and that are taking other oral medications. Now let's dive into the distribution. So metronidazole has significant distribution into many body fluids and and tissues, including the bile, seminal fluid, bone, liver, and liver abscesses, lung and vaginal secretions. And also importantly, it does cross the blood-brain barrier and CSF concentrations can reach those that are in the plasma. So the exceptions of this, though, of this vast distribution would be metronidazole's penetration into adipose tissue, the placenta, which come in less than 20% of the serum concentration. Next, let's talk about the metabolism. So this is usually where a lot of people tend to tune out in the program, but hear me out here. Uh, This is actually quite interesting. So metronidazole is metabolized by the liver into five metabolites. And one of those metabolites called the hydroxy metabolite is of particular clinical significance because this hydroxy metabolite has antimicrobial activity that approaches 30 to 65% that of metronidazole. So more on this in in a little bit here, but I wanted to give the, the listeners an idea that metronidazole is not just metronidazole, that its metabolites are also significant. Metabolism is a very important part for us pharmacists. I feel like it goes mostly ignored by most others, but I feel like we really nerd out about metabolism. Most definitely. And um, if you're going to nerd out about metabolism, let's nerd out about elimination too. (laughs) So let's round this out. And as far as elimination of metronidazole, around 20% of the total drug is excreted unchanged in the urine. And 6 to 15% is excreted in the feces. The elimination half-life, this is probably the most interesting piece of this in regards to this conversation. The elimination half-life ranges between 6 and 10 hours. And in most studies, reporting this half-life is in the 8-hour range. And so what about the active hydroxy metabolite? I doubt this was in your PKPD exam in pharmacy school or med school, but let's talk about it. The half-life of this less active metabolite is about 11 to 13 hours. So not only is the parent molecule, and not only does the parent molecule have an eight-hour half-life, but its active metabolite has almost a 12-hour half-life as well. And this makes the argument and one of the main drivers for a BID dosing versus TID dosing. And lastly, let's just briefly touch on pharmacodynamics. How can we talk about PK without PD? Metronidazole appears to have an extremely rapid rate of killing against susceptible anaerobes. And like aminoglycosides and fluoroquinolones, metronidazole appears to exhibit a concentration-dependent killing. So you might be asking yourself, why do we give metronidazole more frequently when it has exhibited concentration dependent killing? And I think that's a great question. And just looking briefly at metronidazole's product labeling, of the 18 indications listed in there, seven of those are for a BID frequency, whereas 11 are listed as a TID or QID frequency. So there is controversy here, and I hope that today's podcast can shed some light on that. I love how you called its absorption its superpower. So we do love a good bioavailable drug, especially in the inpatient realm where we can 
have protocols and policies where we just automatically switch that without any sort of physician consent. So I really love that. And then pharmacodynamics, something I've never really thought about beyond potentially beta-lactams, maybe fluoroquinolones. So really honing in on those pharmacodynamics of metronidazole, I think are important because again, not things that you learn in pharmacy school, things that we learn after the fact. And probably not a talk you'll see at ID Week either. No, <laughs> although I think metronidazole kind of has a mystery mechanism of action. So <clears throat> might be an interesting thing to deep dive into. All right. So Sunish, what indications do you typically see metronidazole used in the hospital versus the community setting? Mostly on the inpatient side, we'll see it often for intra-abdominal infections in combination with cephalosporins, so things like ceftriaxone or cefepime, so small bowel obstructions, perforations, and it's usually in the empiric setting, although I think at my program, we do a pretty good job trying to follow recommendations from the stop at trial and usually won't continue antibiotics longer than four days if the source is controlled. A good amount of cholangitis, too, is, again, same thing uh, in combination with ceftriaxone or cefepime. But even there, there's been more data coming out questioning if it's needed, if the anaerobic coverage is needed. Like there was one earlier this year from Simeonova and colleagues and Jack AMR where they did a propensity match study and didn't really find a benefit towards adding anaerobic coverage in biliary tract infections. All things considered, it was a real world study. So with their microbiology, it was things like E. coli and Klebsiella that were recovered. And few patients actually had an anaerobic organism recovered. Otherwise, deeper diabetic foot infections, it's common to use, again, in combination with cephalosporin-based regimens. I'll sometimes see it with, you know, if we have patients with penicillin allergies and they aspirate, I'll see some people do things like ceftriaxone plus metronidazole, but I'll, I'll usually ask my colleagues to discontinue the metronidazole there just because ceftriaxone has pretty good oral anaerobic coverage. Um, so things like peptostreptococcus, bionella, it's going to be able to cover without the metronidazole. Speaking of that, I, I try to think of the pathogen itself, and metronidazole isn't universal in all of its anaerobic bacteria, but similarly, some of the other agents aren't either. So one that I'll think of as a good example is agrothelolenta, where I think metronidazole does really well um, and probably better than most of the other agents, such as piptazo. So in the empiric setting, right, a lot of patients might be on piptazo plus or minus vancomycin, but when then cultures come back and you see something like agrothelolenta, it's worth noting that the MICs to this organism run a little bit higher. And there's also a study by Ugarte and Torres in CID where they had patients with bacteremia due to this organism. And the piptazo actually failed compared to regimens such as metronidazole. But I think the bigger concept with all this is with this organism, we knew that MICs tended to run higher with piptazo. And I, I think it may hint towards a role for testing anaerobic bacteria more routinely, that there might be some benefit there. But another example, I, I could say that I also see it in combination with things like ampicillin sulbactam or piptazo. And I think while most of us are taught that that's duplicative, I do wonder, right, um, if you look at the CLSI cumulative antibiogram, non-susceptibility rates run between 4 to 13% for bacteroides with piptazo. So, you know, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing there by always pulling off the metronidazole, although I uh, I still do it. Yeah. I mean, metronidazole is really a powerhouse anaerobic antibacterial. Like when you take a look back and just think about how reliable it is against all of these anaerobes and how 
throughout history, it's been pretty reliable the entire time. It's hard sometimes to argue that dual anaerobic coverage, right, with the piptazo. So I do think in a lot of instances, the anaerobe is not necessarily the organism that you're targeting in terms of what's causing clinical disease. And so that's probably why in a lot of these uh, clinical studies, we see that the addition of metronidazole isn't necessarily um, needed and leading to better clinical outcomes. For community types of disease states that we can use this for. Um, bacterial vaginosis is a really good example. PID, trichomoniasis. So things like that in the community is where we see a lot of our metronidazole. And then we pretty much see it in almost all, all patients on, anti- on antibiotics, especially if they have one of those cephalosporins on board. Um, you'd be hard pressed to find a patient with cephalosporin on board and not metronidazole. So All right. Going into kind of the nitty gritty of why we have this dosing consult, have either of you ever utilized this dosing strategy of every 12 hours? And Nick, we'll start with you. So on the inpatient side in my practice, which is a a community teaching hospital, we have stuck really to the standard 500 milligrams every eight hour dosing approach. We had maybe one or two patients in the outpatient setting where less dosing was more advantageous. And I work with our infectious disease physicians to move to a 750 milligram twice daily dose for those patients. But by and large, we're sticking to the product labeling in many instances on the inpatient side. I would say I also probably am in the same boat as Nick in my previous institution, and then throughout most of my sites at Dayson, it's pretty much every eight-hour approach right now. I do know, I believe, some of the major institutions in North Carolina are pushing for twice-daily dosing, and there's a reason why we have Sunish on the pod today. So if you could give us a little bit of background as to your history with this dosing. Yeah. So when I was a P4, I rotated at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania, and they were using 500 milligrams twice-daily. And, you know, it it didn't match my school notes or Lexicomp or any of the references I was using at the time. So I I asked my preceptor, they gave me the response of go look it up. And that's really, I think, the first time I became familiar with the pharmacokinetics and started to, I guess, just right from the start, get used to doing it as 500Q12. And then from there, when I got more interested in ID, I ended up doing a PGY2 in the fields. Um, the physician at our stewardship program, it was Jeff Topal. Uh, he actually rotated at HUP and then, but had been doing uh, antibiotic stewardship over at Yale New Haven, where I had trained for my PGY2. Um, and for the past few decades, probably for most of his career, he had also been dosing it at 500 Q12. So I, I really never thought of it that much to go back to Q8 until I ventured out of the health system. So I got a job. Um, my current site over at UPMC Presbyterian. Um, and I, I dosed at Q12 and it started to raise some eyebrows. But, you know, from there, we ended up doing, we ended up talking about it quite a bit extensively. We ended up doing an MUE on it and really found no difference. And I guess a little bit more of that data to come. But yeah, like I said, I was first introduced to the concept from uh, some of the folks at Penn. And I'm told Paul Edelstein was the first person to start dosing at 500Q12 over there. So we have the the hallmark provider who is using <laughs> SQ12. So that's pretty cool. I definitely think that's 
very interesting that you've been doing this since you were a student. Go look it up is one of my favorite terms as like a preceptor now, but literally one of the worst things that I could ever be told as a student because um, that most likely meant I could have done better before I got there. So that's awesome that you've taken this all the way to your practice currently as a big pharmacist. So you kind of dipped a little bit into this with where you started with Q12 dosing back at HUP. And so what evidence is there behind this approach? Can you provide a little bit more backing, what you brought to your current institution to really push this movement forward? I think the the backing towards it is just the data to support 500Q8 or Q12. I, I mean, there's some data to support Q12. I, I think it's one of those things where most people are just comfortable dosing it at 500Q8 and that maybe is why there may be some support to continue to do so. But overall, I'm not aware of anything to really suggest that there is going to be more killing or better killing in that way. I think Nick did a really nice job highlighting the PK um, and reemphasizing that there is an active hydroxy metabolite that has 11.6 hours and 65% of the activity of the parent compound. But I mean, with that, I, I start to scrutinize maybe the disadvantages towards continuing at Q8 dosing. So it's one more pill to take throughout the day. Q8 can be a tough regimen, especially if the patient's struggling with compliance. And we hinted at this earlier, but if they're on something oral also in the outpatient setting, say they're on like cefuroxime flagell, I, I think one less dose administration might go a long way. Or if you're also given something Q12 with the metronidazole, it could be helpful. There's drug interactions with it, which I still don't think we fully understand. So things like warfarin, maybe affect the INR less, but also all the other things that we're aware of, gastrointestinal intolerance, encephalopathy, peripheral neuropathy. Historically, there was a meta-analysis out there that says that once you get to the magic 42 grams, that's when you're most at risk. Um, But there's been more recent data to say that that might not be the case. And it might actually just happen with whatever dose, but Nonetheless, maybe the sparing that extra 500 milligrams a day might have its advantages. But in terms of actual clinical data that's out there, like I said, it's it's thin, but it's accumulating, I think. Um, so I mean, uh, some of this data goes all the way back to 1989. There's a study in journal of antimicrobial chemotherapy where they had 48 surgery patients. They checked levels of metronidazole trough levels and found that the trough concentrations were 6.7. And that run several times the MIC of obligate anaerobes, such as bacteroides, which is really where it's most often used, especially when you're given it in combination with under antibiotics. Otherwise, from a clinical standpoint, like an efficacy standpoint, the first people I was aware of, it was Sol and colleagues from Novant Health in North Carolina. They had published a study of 200 patients comparing metronidazole at 500Q12 versus Q8, and they found no difference in clinical cure or mortality. I think I, this paper, again, it's one of the first to really look at this from a clinical standpoint, uh, but a, a major limitation here was that they didn't really have any micro data and thinking back to real world outcomes uh, or real world scenarios we talked about earlier, it's like how often is the anaerobe actually causing disease? Not to mention some of these were like... Um, there weren't really, it wasn't really clear like what the full indication was if you really needed antibiotics for some of these disease states. So also that came to mind too. 
Back in 2021, our team, when I was at Yale New Haven, we had published our experience. It was actually one of those few papers where I submitted it and it was like slam dunk, like no no reviewer comments, nothing like that. And I, I really wasn't used to that, like first try. But anyway, with all that, I, I think there was a lot of excitement with it and I was not expecting it. But either way, it's what we did was we'd published it in the journal Anero, but we took all of our patients who were bacteremic Jake Merweedy from the Yale New Haven Microlab was able to just pull only obligate anaerobic bacteria. Myself, Kathleen Adams, uh, Dana McManus, and Jeff Topal, we all worked on it to look at 500Q8 versus Q12 regimens. And we, again, found no difference. It was a small study. Most of these were Bacteroides patients, but there were only 85. So with that then going forward, I used that data when I tried to get everyone on board at UPMC and they wanted more data and rightfully so it was only 85 patients. So we ended up adding in more patients um, and we have 11 different hospitals throughout UPMC. And so far it's 208 patients or 208 patients that we took to ID week in 2022, but we're still going on it. And when we did our interim analysis at 208 patients, we did not find a benefit towards going Q eight hours um, on clinical cure or mortality. So I'm hopeful in 2024, we can have this finalized though. That's awesome. We definitely need more data out there as someone who creates documents for PNT in order to push things through. <laughs> um, the more clinical data, like you said, the better. So 85 patients can sometimes cut it, but the more we have, the better. And I really applaud you guys' efforts up at UPMC to put this out there as well as Novant for putting it out there um, a couple of years ago. I love the throwback to 1989. I love me a good, good early article. <laughs> 70s, 80s, love those. <laughs> Nick, do you have anything to add? I just want to comment that the study design is, is brilliant because you pick patients with an actual anaerobic infection. Like you mentioned, we use metronidazole so frequently empirically and I don't know what percentage of patients it is, but I'm assuming very high that are uh, of those patients on metronidazole that really don't have a clinical anaerobic infection. So I really appreciate that you you, know, you selected those those patients that that would clearly benefit from an anti-anaerobic antibiotic. Thanks. Yeah, and it's it's hard too because it's like there's no real right way I think to ever do any study. Like the more I think about it too, it's like a lot of these patients got ceftriaxone in combination. And then when you look to some studies report that ceftriaxone is active against 30% of Bacteroides species. I, I think it's probably better with just Bacteroides though, as opposed to some of the other obligate anaerobes where I think ceftriaxone might even be a little bit more active. Um, but yeah, appreciate that. Thanks. So I wanted to have Nick maybe touch on a little bit of this. How do we get this going in our healthcare system? What does it look like to start this up as a pharmacist? Because it it's really cool going through this data, but it's how we're going to implement and what the steps are to make that possible that are the most important, I think, to a lot of pharmacists and a lot of our listeners here in order to implement this at our own institutions. So I think it's fair to say we're probably unlikely to see a randomized controlled trial in this space in the near future. So I think re reviewing the, the limited clinical data that's out there, and if you're compelled by that, I think the next steps would be a standard plan, do, study, act cycle. It's likely the stewardship program that's going to be leading this. 
to get buy-in regarding this dosing change, which is quite significant. I mean, metronidazole comes in certainly in the top eight, seven or eight antibiotics administered in the hospital. So this isn't just a simple uh, modification. You need to define, I would say, the patient population that would receive twice daily metronidazole. So I'm thinking excluding C. diff patients, so severe fulminant C. diff, um, excluding potentially CNS infections, potentially. So I think there are some exclusions to that, and you have to work on carve-outs with that. I think discussing with key stakeholders is extremely important. I want to I give a shout-out to my wife, who is a physician assistant in the general surgery department. So we have many dinner conversations surrounding antibiotic use, and, and metronidazole comes up. So, <laughs> Great dinner conversations. Yeah, she exactly. Talk about She's metronidazole at dinner. <laughs> and so the question of like, well, you know, Piptazo, I only have to click one box for that. But ceftriaxone, metronidazole, I have to click two boxes. So I'm working working on implementing stewardship activities, not only at work, but, but discussing with key stakeholders, ID, hospitalists, intensivists, GI, um, obviously in our in our general surgery and pharmacy departments, and providing robust education around that why. So including memos to these groups, but you know, I think the bring donuts with with a smile is also important. I think that really helps bridge the gap of a uh, come in peace. <laughs> Little um, crumble cookie bait. <laughs> yes. Also a memo to community pharmacies too. I mean, we, we can't forget about them. You know, I think if they are routinely seeing three time a day prescriptions in your area, that uh, quick memo is is worth it because then they're calling less, uh, trying to verify orders and in, in that. And just determining the scope. So is this inpatient? Is it outpatient as well? Selecting a go live date, switching all those orders and the EMR and all those guidelines that you have. And then I think last but not least is performing that post-intervention analysis, starting out with an MUE and then potentially moving that into a pre-post study that gets published and, uh, and everyone can benefit from. So Wow, look at that. We just laid out exactly what everyone is going to start doing in in fiscal year uh, 24, right? Yeah. And definitely working with IT is going to be a big That's that was our big hold up at my last institution when I was going through this process of potentially changing over is had those those darn physician favorites. How do you get rid of them? Because that's like always the big IT thing, right? You can change all the order sets you want, but if they have it saved as a favorite already, then I don't know what you can do about it. But uh, some things that I've personally come up with is changing metronidazole at a ERX level or like the baseline drug level to only prompt to give twice a day dosing. And it should potentially help any of those aspects, depending on what kind of system you have. It can change the, if you change the baseline drug, it'll change in the favorite itself. And so um, that's a potential idea there. I don't know if any of you guys have ideas. I think that's one of the biggest things we've ever run into is okay, we can tell them to do twice a day dosing, but if they're just going to pull from their favorites and use three times a day, then I don't know how we're going to stop that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what we did at both sites. So one of the hospitals I was at, like right out of residency was uh, Lawrence Memorial, which is a part of the Yale New Haven system, but they weren't routinely dosing it Q12 hours. So actually once, but the thing is like most people weren't really thinking about it that much and they were comfortable with Q12. So actually just defaulting it to Q12 ended up increasing order usage for Q12. And the same thing, well, 
at UPMC, we use PowerChart. So when you type in metronidazole, it gives you two doses. And originally, the every eight-hour one would pop up first, but we switched it so that the every 12-hour one would pop up first. And from there, our usage for every 12 hours went up much higher. Love that stewardship nudge right there. <laughs> Shout out to nudges. <laughs> I did have a question. Is there any sort of cost savings that you have potentially calculated out of this? I know it's such a cheap drug, so it might not be like the highest on the list, but um, could be another potential driver to make people okay with the decision despite the limited clinical data. Yeah. Unfortunately, like you said, it's it's not the most expensive drug. Well, fortunately, but unfortunately. So yeah, when it came time for us to pitch our cost savings idea, it, I felt like mine barely counted. It was like less than a few thousand dollars. <laughs> but still, I mean, it goes a long way, right? It's less nursing administration time, less pharmacy technician time delivering. So um, I think those things are harder to calculate. But just as important. Right. Nurses don't want to be hanging bags three times a day, especially when they could be hanging it at the same time as other drugs. <laughs> Or giving it oral. <laughs> or giving it oral, yeah. Those oral protocols will really come into play there. <laughs> so I think we've touched on a lot of the main points um, to help our initial dosing consult be more confident in their decision to, to dose every 12 hours instead of every eight hours. We've touched on PKPD, which we always love touching on in these dosing consults, as well as some of the benefits that we can have in the health system and how we can push this through and make it an initiative of priority, saving nursing time, as well as technician time um, and any sort of metallic taste that the patients may feel after each dose. Reducing that is definitely also worthwhile. And so the time has come, Breakpoint's Faithfuls, for our I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's I Feel Nerdy, there will be two options to pick from. So the first is, what is your favorite fun fact or counseling point for metronidazole? Or what is your favorite time metronidazole has been added to an already absurd antimicrobial regimen? I'll start up. I'm going to navigate around the disulfuram-like reaction on this one, and I, I'm I'm going to go with the hydroxy metabolite. I think this was something I was unaware of, but metronidazole's long-acting uh, and half-active hydroxy metabolite, I think, is the unsung hero here, and would allow us to maybe more comfortably move into a twice daily dosing regimen. Nice. I also feel like that is an unsung hero of this specific pod, as well as all of our dosing worries in the future. <laughs> yeah, I guess a, a favorite time it's been added. I don't know if it's a favorite time, but I always get a mini aneurysm when somebody will be on Piptazo and I try to deescalate to cefuroxime and flagell. And then they forget to DC the Piptazo and they'll be on Piptazo, Cefuroxime, and Flagyl. Um, mm. so. The true trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> All of the oral and the IV. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me today. And thank you to our loyal audience for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. I have been your host, Jeanette Bouchard, and our featured speakers have been Drs. Nick Turney and Sunish Shah. Breakpoints was created by Julie Angesto, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and myself, Jeanette Bouchard. 
and it was edited by Rachel Britt and peer-reviewed by David Butler and Jenna Januska. Our production team includes Veronica Savante and Justin Moore, the executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.